listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Old Bodies Outside. This is your host, Brian Peterson. I am super excited for this episode's guest, Martinez Evans. He has been on the cover of Runner's World magazine, and on June 6th, he has a book coming out called Slow AF Run Club, the ultimate guide for anyone who wants to run. Also, he is the founder of an online running community called Slow AF Run Club which includes a training platform for beginners and non-traditional runners. This community's website is slowafrunclub.com. So be sure to check it out. Martinez, I am so grateful that you're on Old Bodies Outside. Thank you for having me, Brian. Yeah, you've been doing all kinds of great work. And so when when were you on the, the cover of Runner's World magazine? So Runner's World last January, January, what year is this? January, 2022, I was on the cover of Runner's World. Wow. That's so cool. That's fantastic. And so when did you, when, when did you start running? Uh, I started running back in 2012. I have a very interesting experience of how I got there, man. If you want to hear it, I can let you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, why don't we first hear about, I want to hear about the, the stuff that you've been doing with slow AF run club. I want to hear about your book and then we can get into that kind of starting point if, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Okay. So let's hear about slow AF run club. What's that community like? Um, who's involved with it? What can you get from it? Absolutely. The slow AF run club is the best community for slow runners and walkers on the internet. Our mission and our vision is to empower every person on this planet to become a a runner in the body that they have right now. And one of our overall goals is to get 1 million runners um, to start running in the next 10 years. Oh, that's fantastic, Martinez. That's great stuff. Uh, And so with this community and with inspiring people, what are the core values that kind of are behind that mission? Absolutely. So our core values is perseverance, positivity, courage, determination and dedication. Um, I feel like by having those things, anybody can be the athlete they want to be in the body they have right now. Nice. Nice. And so how long did it take you to formulate the mission and the core values of slow AF run club? Um, Brian, it's something that is is ever evolving, man. Um, that's the thing about mission and visions is that, you know, some people write them and then they kind of forget about them, but what we try Try to, try to tend to do is come back to these things and really figure out, hey, are these values and visions still serving us, especially in the, the climate that we have right now? Do we need to update it in, the, in any way? So it's one of those things. It's a living, breathing document. I like that. I like that a lot. And that's great to constantly reexamine it and not let it just kind of get stuck in a, a rut from 10 years ago. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you also have a book coming out on June 6th. That's uh, June 6th of 2023. And so what is your book about? And also, I want to know how I can pre-order it. All righty. Slow AF Run Club, the ultimate guide for anybody who wants to run. This book here takes all of my experiences, my 10 years of experience of becoming a runner, learning things the hard way, and putting it in a very digestible book for anybody who were reading it can get off the couch and start right then and there. 
a lot of running books, you know, are written by professional runners or um, coaches of elite athletes telling slow people to lose weight and get faster or like trying to figure out ways that you too can be also a professional athlete. And my book is the complete antithesis of that. My book is, Hey, this is what you can do. You can be a runner in the body that you have right now. And here are the ways that I did it so that you can do it as well. Oh, Martinez. I love it. I love that you pointed out that there is not just one conceptualization of running. There's a huge variety of conceptualizations of running. And so, you know, people that, you know, have been former Olympians or, you know, are these really super fast athletes, they do not have the same perspectives of other types of runners that have different conceptualizations of running. And so I love what you're bringing to the running community. You are expanding the running community. And I love that it, it helps achieve the goal of getting, uh, you know, 1 million slow runners out into races in 10 years. So uh, kudos for that book. So how do we pre-order it? So you can find this book everywhere books are sold. Amazon, okay. Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore down the street and around the corner. Uh, you can find them wherever books are sold. Nice, nice. And so how long does it take to, to write a book? I've never done it before. Brian, it takes forever. <laughs> 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 so um, the whole process took about a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer, let's say two years, because, you know, with traditional book publishing, you have to write a book proposal and then you have to go find an agent and then you have to go pitch the book to all of these brands, uh, not brands, but like book publishers, right? And that can take anywhere between, I say, three to six months altogether. And then you get the contract and they say, here's, here's your book contract, go write the book. And for me, it took me about 18 months to write the full book from cover to cover. Um, and that's when you send it into the publisher. One of the things they don't tell you in, in traditional publishing is that once you send it into the publisher, the work isn't done. Like you still, there's still more work to be happening. Um, there's always edits. There's tons of different edits that goes along with it. So like just the writing part took about 18 months. Um, and like, we're still, like as we are recording this thing, we're still, I still get email requests for like certain edits here and there because like the, it just goes through so many different types of editing. So like content editing or, um, grammatical error editing. And then there's one that's called like last pass where they just read everything and then see if like there's something wrong with it. So every once in a while, I'll still get an email that's like, Hey, Martinez, this sentence sounds weird. Or this paragraph seems a little weird. Like here are the suggestions that we're thinking about updating to that. Do you approve it or how else would you like to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that editing process sounds, um, can be a little bit cumbersome. So I got an interesting question for you. You have, gain so much perseverance and mental fortitude through running. Does that carry over to getting through these edits while writing this book? Absolutely. So even writing this book, it's a huge overtaking. So first of all, they tell you it's all in words. They don't tell you, well, you need to write so many pages because like it can be all over the place with fonts and things of that sort. What they tell you is say, here, Martinez, you have to write 75,000 words. <laughs> Go right. <laughs> That's a lot of words. <laughs> so you'll sit there and like 75,000 words. Like, do I even have that much to say about anything? Right. And then for myself, I was like, okay, I need to just break this down. So I did the math. I was like, okay, I'm going to be very generous with myself. Let's say I wrote four days a week. 
So four days a week times 18 months gives me this many days. Let's divide that by 75,000 words. Um, I did the math. It was somewhere in between 198 words a day for four days. Okay. A week. That's very, that's very, that's easy. Like that's an abstract, like that's a two paragraphs, maybe three. Um, and from there, once you get in the groove, oh, you're going to write more than 198 words. So like some days I'll be writing 4,000 words, some days like 2,000 words to come out. And then other days I'll be fighting for my life just to get 190 day, uh, 198 words out. So yeah. it's all about consistency and ebbing and flowing. But the, my goal was that I was going to sit in this computer chair for three hours a day and type something. So even when, when words wouldn't come out and I'm looking at my outline, one of the things I was typing was, this is dumb. So I'll literally just type, this is dumb. This is dumb. And then like various proses would come out like, this is dumb. This is dumb. I remember one time when I... You know, when I ran this race and then I started talking about like that story and then I run out of words and I go back to like, this is dumb. This is dumb. And then it's like nutrition is the fundamental key of running, blah, 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 blah. And, and then once you get done from there, like, of course, you have to like move words around and like move paragraphs around. But it, it's all a whole process that once you get all done, like you have 75,000 word manuscript. Well, I like that you broke it up into digestible goals. I mean, that makes it a lot easier. And um, I, I couldn't imagine, I mean, Martinez, as you know, I am a professor at Kansas State University. So I write scientific manuscripts. They're like uh -huh. 7,000 words and doing the edits for those 7,000 words is rough. So I could imagine for 75,000 words. Yes, it, it is a beast. And I think I've also published some scientific uh, articles. So I think that has helped me as well. Like, uh, back in in another life, I worked as a uh, like a research coordinator for a, a few different places. So oh. I, I wrote some I wrote some scientific journals, and I get it. Like that process in itself is so much harder than this whole book writing process. Because usually, uh. um, usually you're you know um, our our scientific center like we had a, a whole writing group, so it was seven people on this thing. So it's going through seven different revisions before I can even get it approved to submit it to the, 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 the scientific journal. Right. And then they're going through like their whole different uh, revision process and things of that sort. And then you got to go back and forth with them. You got to argue different, um, like different thoughts and like different arguments and things of that sort. And you got to bring it back to the whole writing group. And it, that process in itself, it's so much harder than me sitting at a computer by myself with my thoughts and then sending it to the publisher and, you know, they have a fact checker and things of that sort and they'll go through the process and it, it's a, it takes a little bit longer, but I feel like that process is a lot easier than the scientific journal process. Yeah. Well, who knows? Who knows? But uh, that was interesting to hear about a little past life that you've had. Uh, as I was preparing for this episode, I also think I read, were you a football player, offensive lineman? Yes, I was. Nice. Nice. How long did you play football for? Um, I played football. I play, I started in my junior year of high school and then I played my junior, senior year, and then a year of collegiate football. Nice. Nice. Okay. Okay. Well, let's get back to, uh, one of the things that you mentioned earlier in our conversation was how you got into that first marathon. 
Um, do you mind telling the story of that? Yes. So let's talk about this. How I got started and how did I decide to run my first marathon? I'm going to take you back to 2012 as a ex-football player, 360-pound ex-football player working at Men's Warehouse. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. That was me. That was me in suits every day, in hard bottom shoes every day, uh, working commission sales every day. I was on my feet for so long that I started to develop some hip issues. Um, I went to go see a doctor. That doctor looked at me and said, oh, you having some hip pain? I said, yeah. He was like, I know why, I know why you're in pain. Okay, what is it? It's because you're fat. What? Yeah, you're fat. And then he goes on this whole thing of telling me, you're fat. You got a stomach of a pregnant woman. You, you need to lose weight or die. I'm still on the fact of like, I'm 6'3", 360 pounds. I got this small doctor who I never met a day in my life telling me I'm fat. So I'm still trying to like resist the urge of like throwing him against the wall. Right. So we go back and forth and I remember saying to him, well, screw all that doc. I'm going to run a marathon. He was like, you run a marathon. That's the most stupidest thing I heard in all of my years of practicing medicine. If you run a marathon, Martinez, you will die. You'll die on that course. Nobody of your size should be running a marathon. You need to lose weight first, or you definitely are going to die. So I stormed out the doctor's office as much as I wanted to like just tackle him. Stormed out the doctor's office. And on my way to going home, I drove past a running shoe store, made a legal U-turn. I went in there and I said, I need shoes and I need them now. Got the shoes, went home to my um, little fitness center in my apartment complex. There's three treadmills in there. The only open treadmill is one in the middle of two other people who are already on the treadmill running. I get on the treadmill. Look to my right. This person is going like 10. Look to my left. This person is going like nine, nine and a half. So I think to myself, if they're doing 10 and nine, I can at least do seven. I put seven on that treadmill. And 15 seconds later, I was on the ground, man. I fell off the treadmill. And as I got up and I ran out the, 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 the fitness center and I went home, I have this tattoo on my right wrist. And I remember reaching out to the door and I can see the tattoo. It says no struggle, no progress. And it's from the, um, the, the, the seminal speech that Frederick Douglass gave. And as I looked at that tattoo and I was opening the door, I remember shaking my head and being like, I know what I got to do. So every day after that day of following up the treadmill, I'll go back in the fitness center and try to go a little bit longer. So 15 seconds became 30 seconds. 30 seconds became a minute. A minute became five minutes. And I just kept going consistently over and over and over again. Next thing you know, these minutes turned into miles. And then for miles, um, I run my first race. I run my first 5K. And the running bug is getting me. Next thing you know, I'm signing up for 10 different 5Ks. I'm running 5Ks all over the place. And then, you know, I was like, okay, got this 5K thing on the wrap. Let's do a 10K. Let's do a half marathon. 
And then on New Year's Day of 2013, January 1st, 2013, um, Detroit Marathon's registration opened for their marathon that was there for October 13th or October 2013. And I signed up that day for that marathon. And I took those 10 months to train and get ready for it. Wow, that is a heck of a story. And just all the things that you overcame. I mean, I can't believe this insensitive doctor then falling off the treadmill. Uh, but then like where you stayed consistent with it and you found a way to almost like you put together this plan, whether it, you, it was meant to be a plan or it's just something that came together um, organically, but you know, just doing a little bit more each day, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, you know, you got there. Um, and so going through and doing that Detroit marathon, what was it like to finish knowing that you had overcome all of that to get to that finish line? Oh man, it meant a lot to me. It meant that a, what that doctor thought of me was not true. B it meant that anything that I put my mind to, as long as I stick with it and stay consistent and persistent. I can do it. Yeah. And I, you know, so if part of the preparation for this episode, you sent me the first chapter of your book. And one of the things I really loved a lot about that first chapter was that mindset. And so for you having that mindset, overcoming all this stuff, I mean, gosh, you ran a marathon, which a doctor said you might die. And you already know this guy is an insensitive coward, but he is an expert. And he's saying you might die. Like that has to be pretty scary in itself. Uh, where did, how, how did this get fostered in you? Is it from one of your parents? Um, where did this come from for you? Um, my life is all about avid, um, overcoming obstacles and proving people wrong. So to give background, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, right? On the east side of Detroit, one of the roughest parts of the cities. Um, I've had two brothers passed while I was younger, right? Um, I've lived next to a crack house growing up. And so walking to school, walking past that crack house every day and like defying those temptations, whether it's a being on drugs myself or B, you know, being a drug dealer, there's so many things that I've overcome in my life that a doctor telling me I'm fat is like a, tell a teacher telling me I'll never graduate high school. It's like a professor in undergrad that I say, you'll never go to grad school. You'll never get a master's degree. So a doctor telling me fat, I'm fat and I'm going to lose weight. I need to either lose weight or die. It's just another peg on the stories that other people have tried to put on me and me going out and proving them wrong. Yeah, I love it. I love how you handle this. Like, I don't know. It's almost like these people put out this like very horrible level of approval. I don't know. Like, it's just like, but you overcoming all that stuff and having this long history of doing that. I mean, that's really, really inspiring. And it's, I think that's, you know, probably something that you bring so strongly to uh, slow AF run club are these stories of overcoming challenges, whatnot. And running is there's a lot of challenges with running, such as going out on a rainy day. Right. Um, you know, there's all kinds of mental perseverance and whatnot. And so um, in the first chapter of your book, you, refer to yourself as a non-traditional runner um, and non-traditional runners are faced with so many extra challenges um, and stuff that you got to come over. And so what is a non-traditional runner? 
a non-traditional runner is anybody that does not fit in the mold. So as I like to say, too fat, too old, too fill in the blank to be a runner. If if you have that, oh, I can't be a runner because of fill in the blank, you are then a non-traditional runner. Uh, non-traditional runners, we go through so much because we are like the the, forgetting, the forgotten people out on the course. And what I mean by that, I've ran races where they've ran out of water. I've ran races where they've taken up the, the signs. I've ran races where they've ran out of medals, right? So I, I paid for this experience that they then promised that everybody else would experience the same thing. And just because of my pace or just because of where I've started at and where I finished, I did not get the same treatment. I would say, Martinez, you're way more hardcore than those people that finish in, say, two and a half hours, three hours. <laughs> I mean, gosh, like running out of water on the marathon course, having signs taken down, and you don't know you know, possibly where you're at at times. Like, my gosh, that's way more hardcore. It is, man. And then the thing is, you have like these elitist runners uh, who are like, oh, you're not a true runner. Lose weight, get faster. Like if you would have ran faster and you would have took running seriously, and if you would have lost weight while training, maybe you would have ran faster. You wouldn't experience those things. And it's like, that is victim blaming one-on-one. So just because I did not run faster, even though I paid my money and I did my training, I don't deserve to receive everything everybody else received just because I finished the race later than you all. What type of sense does that make? don't make any sense they're finishing you know people are finishing you know a couple hours ahead they're already going home and having a hamburger and whatnot that is more hardcore to be on the course longer <laughs> exactly brian and that's the thing it, it is an amazing feat to run a marathon in like three hours or two hours like elliot uh kipoja you know running the marathon under two hours that is an amazing feat i'm not taking it away because that that is amazing but it's also amazing feat to run a marathon, A, in general, and B, to run a marathon and be on your feet and be out on the course in the elements for six hours plus, sometimes seven hours, eight hours. So I'm yeah. on my feet the whole work day, somebody's wow. whole work day on my feet going through this course. Most of the time I have to run with three liter, a three liter backpack on my back. Because I know races run out of water and, and ran out of water so many times that I don't even trust them. When they say they're going to have water for me, I'm running with a three-liter bladder on my back. Snacks on me, right? An extra cell phone charger. A map of the course on my phone, on my screensaver. So if I get lost, I can easily pull up the, the, the map and figure out where I'm at so I can get home. I'm pretty much MacGyver. I'm yeah. MacGyver on the course. <laughs> I love I'm it. MacGyver you are MacGyver. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, and like being MacGyver on the course, like, man, like, you know, you're ready for any obstacle. You're like, you know, I don't care what you guys are going to do. I'm going to handle this. But you're also carrying, now you got this backpack on, three liters right there. That's probably an extra six or seven pounds in itself. So you probably plus some extra stuff, have a 10-pound backpack on that no one else on the course is even running with. I mean, exactly. that just now adds to the feet. Um, gosh, Martinez, that's amazing. So I want to know, um, being a little sensitive here, when you finish that first marathon, Detroit marathon, and you've crossed that finish line, you're patting yourself on the back. I mean, 
is that just something that you teared up over with self-pride? Oh, man. It was an amazing feat. Um, it was also bittersweet. Um, a, it was amazing because this is the first marathon. My wife was there. My mother was there. Um, and during the whole process, my mom was like, so you really going to run 26 miles? Like, yeah. Wow. I need to be there to see this. <laughs> right? <laughs> so A, it was sweet for that. But it was also bitter just on some of the experiences I experienced on that course. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to touch on some of those, those bitter aspects? Absolutely. So um, one of the things I experienced was like, being taunted and heckled by one of the race volunteers uh, who drove the SAG vehicle. So SAG means like support and gear. Um, and basically it's the vehicle that's on, you know, on most of these courses. So they usually have like water snacks or like if there's somebody's injured, um, they'll put somebody up off the road. Right. So if there's a medical emergency um, or like a non-medical emergency or like a non-threatening emergency, like SAG vehicles there to like, pick the person up off the course, bust them back to the finish line so that they can be with their family or so on and so forth. So the SAG driver heckled me pretty much from like mile 19 all the way until the end of the course. And I'm talking about driving next to me. Hey, big man, you want to ride? Hey, big man, you want to ride? Mile after mile after mile. It wasn't no him checking on me, it was more of like, hey, like, get in the car. I'll take you to the finish line. And, it's, and I'm like, no. Like, I'm doing this. I'm going strong. I have not lost my pace. Um, I'm going through all the things that I'm going through that everybody else goes through while running a race. So hitting the wall, um, fighting with your mind, playing mental tricks to, like, move forward. Because when you run that long, your mind will tell you, stop. Your mind is telling you, stop. You don't have to do this. If you stop right now, the pain will go away. <laughs> Your mind is telling you that. So I'm fighting with my mind, telling my mind, no, I'm going to keep going. Move faster. And my mind is like, no, stop. And then you have this guy every mile who's sowing seeds of doubt. Hey, big man, want to ride to the finish? Hey, big man, like, come on. Just get in, get in. I'll, I'll take you. And then you got your mind being like, well, shit. Like, if you believe him, all the pain that you feel running this race will stop. If you get in the car with him, let him take you to the finish line. But my heart and my body is like, no, I, I, I got unfinished business. I'm here to finish this race. And all of that came to head around mile 25 where this guy was like, Hey, big man, like, come get in this car. And me being like, no, stop. Leave me alone. I got this. Why would you even offer me a ride to the finish line? And I'm less than a mile away. Right. And then he had the nerve to say, I can't help that you fat and slow. Jesus. Jeez. So to experience all of those things. And a lot of people, they'll read that and, 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 and see that in. And probably even experience that and like break down and cry. And I think for me, that's my, my fight, not light or fight, fight or fight comes into place. And I want to fight back and prove this mofo wrong 
and let them know that I'm here to finish this race because I got unfinished business. Gosh, Martinez, you are freaking resilient, man. I'm proud of you. That is like, you know, mile 19, mile 20, right there. That's when the wall, you're, every runner's hitting the wall. The bear's jumping on the back. You got, you know, all this extra weight that your your body, oh, man. Like, I just feel like that's like what I've heard with marathon runners. It's like mile 19, mile 20, the bear jumps on the back. Yes. And like everything just feels heavier. And then you got this this mofo. Uh, and the SAG vehicle, not even doing his job, just being a total complete jerk, and right. you stayed resilient. Exactly. That resiliency is admirable. Exactly. Well, man, that is, that's really cool. So getting into, I wanted to hear about, you know, during that struggle from miles 19 and 25 with the SAG vehicle, there's this also this critical inner voice that is saying, hey, you know, if you stop, the pain will stop. And so your book, what's the, um, the first chapter of your book? What, how does your book start off? What's it about? And so um, the first chapter of the book starts off with that story I just told you, right? Of running the race. And the chapter of that book is called You Versus Your Mind Versus Everybody. And for me, that's running in itself. So it's you. You out there running. You out in the world. Your mind. There's that inner voice that's telling you to stop. And then you got everybody else that's going along. So they might be telling you to stop. They might be cheering you on. And then it's like your mind then playing tricks on you to then um, complete and battle what you're going through. So that's what this book is about. And it's about mindset. And it's some of the mindset cues that I've took and what I've learned along the way in order for me to keep going when a my mind starts playing tricks on me or when you just have overall shitty people who are um, – also trying to bring you down and trying to count you out. Man, that is a fantastic start to the book. I love that a lot. And so um, in that first chapter, what are some other strategies that you mentioned to, you know, deal with all the things that the mind tries to trick you with and uh, kind of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder situation? Yeah. So the first thing is naming and claiming your inner critic. We all have that inner voice. We all have that inner voice who are who telling you you can't do something. They're telling you too fat. They're telling you too slow. They're telling you to stop doing this. They're telling you not to do this. It's telling you not to go for your run. We all have that inner critic. And the first thing I tell you to do is to name it. Name that person. Give that person a persona or that critic, that inner critic, a persona. And that way you're able to recognize what that inner voice and what that inner critic is saying and doing to you, and then what you can do to then combat that. So, for example, my inner critic name is Otis. He has a very raspy voice, like somebody, an old man who's been smoking all his whole life, very sarcastic, and overall just an overall asshole, right? So when Otis is telling me, stop running, don't do this, you're not good enough. Martins, you ain't good enough to write no book. No, why are you writing? Go go do something else. You don't want to write 70,000 words. I'm then telling Otis, what you tell me now is not useful. Go on with that. Ain't nobody here for you looking for you, Otis. So being able to recognize that mindset trigger and being able to personify it, that way you yourself 
can then trick yourself to say, oh, that's just Otis acting out. It's like having that drunk uncle who always have a little bit more, too, too much of a taste. Everybody got that drunk <laughs> uncle who has too much of a taste. Too much opinion, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and you just got to tell that drunk uncle, go on somewhere. Like, I'm not here to mess with you today. I'm not here for your foolishness. And we, we let that drunk uncle know, like, go on. I'm not here for that, fitness, that, that foolishness. They go on and they go sit in that corner. Same thing with the inner critic. Yeah. Man, Martinez, that's that's a really great tool. I love that by personifying it, it it's tricking your mind into turning into something that can be handled, opposed to something being elusive in the mind, not knowing where these voices are coming from, these opinionated voices, this inner um, critical critical voice. Um, gosh, for me, let me think about this. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm applying the tool to myself here. Yes. Um, and I, I feel like I, I also, it would be a male. Um, and probably a male with a booming voice. And when I go out and do athletic endeavors, I often have a voice that speaks loudly to me with very colorful language, um, you know, like speed it the F up, go further, you FFF or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think like I would have to probably go with, you know, I haven't put a lot of thought in this because I'm doing it in the moment. Maybe a Richard, um, a Richard with a loud booming voice. Um, I don't know if he'd have a raspy voice like Otis, but um, uh, I, I see the utility in personifying it. Like it makes it something that is then manageable. And that's the tool. That's the tool. Yeah. Um, my other favorite tool is practice delusional self-belief. Whoa. Delusional self-belief. Yes. Everything is unrealistic until it's not. And this is where delusional self-belief comes into place. Believing in yourself, no matter what, that deep down, it can be true. And one of the examples I use in the book is that you look at all the modern technology. Somebody had to say, hey, I wish I could talk to somebody on the other side of the world. You know what? Hey, Johnny, I think I want to go talk to somebody on the other side of the world. And they'd be like, man, you crazy. You ain't going to talk to nobody on the other side of the world. You better go send a, a, a note. You better go send a, a telegram. Next thing you know, we got the cell phone. You know, we you know, you went from somebody thinking that to now we all got cell phones in our pocket. Right. Delusional. Somebody came up with that idea and somebody had to go, I'm going to keep figuring this out until we get it there. To the fact that it's delusional to all the other people around you. And that's the same thing with having delusional self-belief. I told my doctor I was going to run a marathon. He told me, if you run a marathon, you'll die. But I had to be delusional enough to go out there and take the next step. Even though you got the voice of the doctor telling you, you're going to die. If you run a marathon, you're going to die. And I had to be delusional enough to say, you know what? There's a running shoe store. I'm going to go buy running shoes. I'm going to get on the treadmill today. And even though I fail, I'm going to come back the next day and give it another shot. Yeah. Do you, That's do delusional self-belief. Do you think it's part of your delusional self-belief that made you flip that uh, illegal U-turn as well to go to the running store? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, delusional self-belief is what I call it. Sometimes I call it that dog. Like, you got to have that dog in you. So, I got this little 10-pound poodle. And, like, her name is Mabel. Cutest thing in the world. But, like... The determination and drive that she has 
it's almost like she wills her way to stuff. Hmm. So she wanted to play fetch. I don't want to pay fetch, but she'll look at me. She'll hop into my lap. She'll get the ball. She'll get the ball and put it in my lap. Still won't play with her. She'll get the ball and try to put it in my hand. Still won't play with her. She'll get the ball and then go on the ground and play with herself. And then hop in your lap with the ball again and try to give it to you again. And you'd be like, all right, I'm going to throw this ball. So it's like having that dog in you, having that delusion of self-belief to know that if I just keep going and if I keep trying, eventually the actions and the result I want will come to fruition. Yeah, yeah. It's that delusional self-belief leads to these very high-ordered pieces of gratitude, I guess, maybe self-pride, like, you know, going after this this big goal that is, you know, appears initially delusional. You don't have a plan of how you're going to train or nothing. It's, it's just like, Hey, I'm registering for that marathon. Boom. Okay. I'll figure stuff out later. Um, but like the sense of accomplishment that comes with achieving that delusional, um, self-belief that you can do it is Mm -hmm. I think something that is probably a big piece of the very complex happiness equation. Absolutely. Um, third technique, Doing it afraid. Very simple. Three words. Do it afraid. Most of the time, we don't know what the reaction is. We, we try to Google it. We try to try to not make mistakes. We try to make it perfect. But you have to do it afraid. Here's why. By doing something afraid, that then gives us more grit to then do other scary things. So it's like adding to your fear piggy bank of like, oh, I'm gonna do this. Wait, I'm afraid, but I'm gonna do it anyway. That then you can take that experience, put it in the bank, save it for something else, for something else a little bit more scary. So like, that's something I'm always thinking about. It's like, oh, like I'm afraid I'm gonna do this. And then I try to think of other things, other scary things or something that's more scarier than the, the obstacle in front of me that I already did. They say, well, sh- I, I, don't know, I already did it before. Like, I can do this. Like, I've done X, Y, Z, which is way more scarier than this. Yeah, what a confidence booster. Yeah. Yeah, and I love the piggy bank metaphor. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what's, uh, what's tool, or go for it. Um, are you another tool? Okay, let's rock tool number four. Tool number four. Um, this this is one of my favorites. Is changing your perception. So we all, our mind are like we're. I forgot what it says. Like six sixty thousand decisions we all make. Um, one of the things that I've learned that has made me be more successful is that. Whenever something bad happens, I don't see it as necessarily bad, right? I see it as you can you can always choose to be a half glass a half empty or a glass half full type of person. So you can't always be perspective. Like you can't always be a positive person. I get that. But in the face of like choosing positivity or negativity and you can't choose positivity, choose neutral. So for me in my life, there's only, there's no negative. It's either positive or neutral. This is either, this is great or this is neither good or bad. 
I will have to use that. I do not do that. And I love that a lot. And I love that you're just finding these, the, this positive perception, even when stuff is challenging or that neutral perception, but not going into the negative realm. Right. Because like life is too short to, to be stuck into this negative flow. Yeah. Like we get into this negative, like I leave that for all the naysayers and haters out there, but for myself and my inner talk and like talking with Otis, like we all can't be positive all the time. Like we can't have that. Um, we, we just can't have that. Like that's just a nature of us, but we don't always have to choose negative as well. So for myself, like I've, I've always chose neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, my chance. I love that. I feel like when I get into that negative headspace, um, I'm letting Richard run the show, let's say uh-huh. um, <laughs> it turn. it feels like I'm just kind of stuck in a maze. I'm not getting out of it. And I'm, I'm just like, I got this like negative loop in my head. Um, and it's, you can, we can all choose to turn that loop off, get out of the maze, be neutral. If you got to be neutral, but there's positive out, there's plenty of positive and everything. Right. Um, so, so yeah, like as much as you want to be positive as you can, I know we all can't be positive, but having that neutral aspect and like having that in your toolbox to say, Oh man, this is horrible. Like, how did this happen? And me catching myself and being like, you know what? This is neither good nor bad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. That's fantastic. Uh, so how did you have, you know, you talked a little about your childhood earlier, but you have, a background of understanding psychology or something. I don't know if that's just through life experiences. If you are self-educated, uh, how do you, like, how did you identify a mental toolbox? I mean, that's not, we're right now talking very casually about it, but I think it's pretty challenging. Oh man, Brian, it's, it's, there's a lot of things. So of course, psychology classes, course, reading books, course, therapy, uh, I think I just picked up a lot of things along the way um, of just life. So going to see a therapist, you learn some technique to, techniques there. You know what? I'm going to hold on to that. You know, taking some psychology classes. You know what? I'm going to hold on to that. Um, same thing with just reading a few books and being like, you know what? I'm going to hold on to that. And the next thing you know, you just have this, this toolbox, for lack of a better words, of all the different things that you can use, right? when it comes to a particular thing in life that's either holding you back or sometimes even you holding your own self back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, I'm just going to repeat that. I love that your book started with that because I think the mental component is uh, where it's all at. Not everything, right? There's a physical component, but it's like way smaller, way smaller compared to that mental component. Um, And so I wanted to ask you last night, my wife and I, we watched a, a documentary on Netflix that has to do with, some non-traditional therapy. It's called Stutz. Have you heard of that? Mm-mm. What's that? Yeah, you'll have to check it out. Um, it features the actor Jonah Hill and his therapist, his Hollywood therapist, um, and they've been working together for years. And um, he, the therapist's name is Philip Stutz, and he's okay. been a therapist for quite a long time. But he uses uh, some non-traditional approaches that probably have not been scientifically tested, but I think he has tested them himself anecdotally through the years with all his experiences. Um, And it was something that uh, was a a really wonderful experience for my wife and I to watch because it got us talking about ourselves to each other. And we we got to have this like really cool examination of each other before we went to bed and just talking about um, these different aspects in there of his 
uh, non-traditional approaches. So I recommend checking out. It's a fun little one to watch, um, okay. and it's on Netflix. Uh, okay, so continuing on, um, I have a question for you. We're going to change a little bit of the direction. We've been talking a lot about your first chapter, um, but I want to hear about what are three horrible experiences that have occurred to you while running, and what did you learn from each? All righty. All right. I thought about this. You ready? Go for it. Yeah. So um, let's start off with the with the race, right? My, my first marathon. Um, and the, the person heckling me and my, my mental telling me to stop. One of the things that I learned during that, that whole thing is it, it's definitely mind over matter. So, and I know we talked about mindset for a little bit, but I'm just want to harp on this is that it's literally mind over matter. Like you can literally will your way to what you want and you can will your way to the result or somewhat similar to the result, what you're looking for, You just have to be persistent and consistent with it. So that's the first one. Um, I ran big Sur marathon and DNF. So did not finish. And one of the things that happened to me during that race was um, the race director was like, Hey man. So first things first, big Sur marathon. It's on route one um, in California, beautiful views. You know, it's a two lane highway. Um, and most of the times you, you, you can't walk route one because it's literally a two lane highway off the coast of California. Amazing views. Um, they have a time limit. I get that time limit. The race director comes to me and said, Hey, like, I see you still going strong, but we're going to have to, we, we got to open these courses back up or we got to open these roads back up. But what I can do for you is that if you get in the car now, instead of taking you back to the finish line, we can move you up further in the course and then you can continue to run. Like, let's get you past this big hill, like the big Sur peak. I forgot what it's called. And like continue to run. And for me, that experience, a couple things was going on in my mind. So one thing that's going on in my mind is that like, what are the haters going to say? Right. And another thing was, am I actually like, cannot call myself a marathon finisher if I finish this race, knowing that like this race director, like theoretically put me in the car and then moved me up. And one of the things I learned from all of this is that in the bigger scheme, none of this stuff matters. <laughs> this is what I mean. I'm not running a race to win it. I'm not running a race to get prize money or anything, anything of that sort. So any result that that has happened doesn't matter in the scheme of things because my overall goal was to see Big Sur in a way that I've never experienced it, and I did. To experience Big Sur on foot and take stop and take pictures and look at the ocean and, like, walk on that big bridge they got. I experienced all of those things. So the other things that happened, me getting in the, in the sack vehicle and, 
being moved up and them having to open the course and, you know, haters being like, oh, you didn't finish it, blah, blah, blah. None of that stuff mattered in the scheme of things because I, 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 I completed what I wanted to complete, which was to see Big Sur in a way that rarely nobody gets to see it. Um, so that was, that was another one. And then the third one, this is where I, I'll let you know. So the third one is when the first time a race ever ran out of water on me. So it was the hottest day of the year. Um, it was like my second half marathon or even my third half marathon. Hottest day of the year. So hot, like they had to get the fire department out there and like spray us with water hmm. to like cool us down because people was dropping like flies. And I remember getting there and being like, "Hey, like, could I have some water, please?" Oh, and they and they've been like, and they were like, "We don't have any more cups." It's like what? We don't have any more cups. Sorry, we can pour it in your mouth but we don't have any more cups. So unless you want to get one of those cups that's on the ground and like drink from, from somebody else's cup, but we don't, we don't have any more cups. And that day for, uh, I learned that I had to be prepared. I had to always be prepared and that nobody, even though I paid my money and even though I expected to have somewhat similar treatment that nobody can save me, but myself. So, it's upon me and my own responsibility. I paid for this race. I trained for it. I need to make sure that I get myself from the start and finish line. Nobody's going to save me. And knowing that nobody's going to save me, this is what I can do in order to still finish. So from that point on, that's where running with three liters of water on my back, or sometimes it's not even that, it's just um, running with, one of those handheld water bottles in my hands so that I can like refill it. Cause like, that's what happens. They run out of cups, but they might still have water left. So I can say, all right, can you put it in my handheld water bottle? So those are the three things, man. Wow. 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 Um, do you think that races, marathons, half marathons are becoming more inclusive and thinking about this stuff that, you know, like, Hey, like we need to, you know, keep the course open longer. We need to make sure that our water is, equitably distributed for the back of the Packers. Like, are you seeing a change at all in the races? Over the 10 years, it is slowly changing. Uh, I was just at a conference uh, earlier this year talking to race directors about that, letting them know that, hey, um, the racing seat is changing. And a lot of races, one of the things that they're always talking about is that how can we get more Gen Zs um, into running? into the sport of running because historically Gen Z's are not competitive at all. They really don't even care about pace or things of that sort. Most of the time they just want to do things with their friends. And, you know, one of the things I was telling these race directors is that if you want more Gen Z's, you got to be a lot more equitable. So like for a lot of these people, they did it the old school way, meaning, you know, they only tailored to the elite athletes in the front and everybody else is more or less an afterthought. And what you're starting to see is that Gen Z participation in, in sports are just less and less across the board. And 
with running being the sport that has a like lower barrier entry, it's a way that races can still be profitable if they did that. So that's one of the things that I've talked to races about. Um, there are a few races that pride themselves on being exclusive and being like Walker friendly courses, you know, having an eight hour marathon cutoff or, you know, some races, uh, the half marathon is on the marathon course. So you have just a bunch, you have, uh, just as much of the race, the, the marathon time limit for the half as you do for the full. Um, so it, it's slowly coming around. And I think that with this book coming out, I hope that more race directors read it. I hope that most more race directors see the experiences that are happening in the back and to help it be more equitable. Um, also I want to say is that a lot of just a lot of companies in general are like diversity inclusion is like the, the big keyword, right? So, you know, uh, racial diversity, um, gender diversity or like gender equity is definitely a big one that, um, like different companies are working on and that is good. And I, I celebrate them all. But I think one of the things that most companies don't even think about is size inclusivity. Hmm. So you have a race, but if your shirts still, if your shirts only go up to an XL or XXL, then you're, you're not inclusive because you have people who are three X or four X who also paid their money for a race, but you don't have a shirt for them. So a person like myself, like I'm a three X type of guy and I can count on my hand, like how many race shirts I have Oh man! because the other shirts, like I'll get them, I'll throw them away. Or sometimes like when I'm at the, the expo, I just tell them, I don't want it. Like give it to somebody else. Because it's just gonna, it's just gonna waste space, because it, it doesn't serve me. Do you know with um, some of these these larger races? But it doesn't matter on the size of the race. Totally cheap. Do they are races open to forming like say advisory groups that get these different types of runners get their voices heard and what their needs and desires are for that race. Um, are there, are, are races doing that? Or are they just kind of like, you know, led by a group and they're just kind of doing their thing and not thinking about being inclusive of all these different types of runners? Um, I don't have that answer. I, I know some races do because some races are, um, like nonprofit, right? But some races are for profit so they can do what they want with it as they please. Um, but it, it's my goal that, you know, once this book comes out that we can continue to have these conversations. Um, yeah. even just going to the race. So like the, the, the event we went to was called running USA. So I went there, I was a scholar, a scholarship recipient this year and, you know, shout out to them for, you know, choosing me for the scholarship. Um, but being able to have these conversations with, um, pretty much America's races, right? So there were 500 people there, um, from various different races from the large ones, like the world majors, like New York city or Chicago. Um, but you also have like the smaller ones who are there as well and just getting them all in the same room and having these conversations is something that I think can provide them with extra value because 
it's one thing to say, okay, we want to get more Gen Z's to run our races. And that's great, but this is the, the larger issues that you can just solve and, and be more inclusive. So for example, even if every race is say, all right, we're going to add three XL to our shirts. I'm going to tell you the truth. These shirts usually cost for them, let's say two to $5 a shirt. Sometimes when you add an extra size, they might charge you more, right? So say for a three X shirt, it's $7 a shirt. You can't pay the extra $7 for somebody else to feel more inclusive. Right. Right. It's so not like, much money. It's not actually, it's not much money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you know, and that's a problem that can be solved right now. Like every race could call their race supplier, their t-shirt supplier and say, Hey, I want to add three X or Hey, I want to add four X. They can do that right now. Yeah, that's easy. But why it's, they don't do that? Who yeah. knows? Yeah. H- have any races asked you to be on their, their board or anything like that? Um, not yet. Not yet. I think that they need that. Like, I, I really think that they, a lot of these races would be served really well by having some sort of advisory committee that, you know, does, that's an inclusive uh advisory board inclusive of different types of runners and whatnot um and to me that signals a lot more than just saying like hey like we're we we cherish diversity and inclusion but that sounds more like tokenism in my opinion versus Mm -hmm. like let's get some people in here that are going to help us make the decisions that are going to help our different types of runners that are out there i agree um and you know every race and every population has like their own issues with races right and like, I think being a black man, like a, like I have issues with just being a black runner. Right. But I also have issues as being like a fat plus size runner as well, just as people who uh, consider themselves as non-binary see some stuff with issues with various races as well. And I think some of the stuff could be just simple solution. So for yeah. example, giving people the option to opt out of choosing male or female, and just choose right. non-binary. That's that's a a, a checkbox in the back of, in the back end of a website. So easy, yeah, it's so easy, <laughs> right? Um, and then for a lot of races, it's like, well, it's all about prize money and blah 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 and things of that sort. And it's like, okay, split the prize money in three. Then you win the men's champion, the women's champion, non-binary mm-hmm. champion. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a s- simple fix to me. Yeah, it is. It is. And like, I think that like, I think that's the, maybe the trend that we're kind of talking about here is there's a lot of fixes that can be done that are low cost and easy. There really is, you know, and they can be easily applied. It's just not showing up on people's maybe race directors radar. So hopefully that conference that you went to Mm -hmm. and talked there, you know, it's starting to get this on the radar. Yeah. 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 So, Hey, I got a couple questions for you before we, we finish up. Um, and the first question I want to ask is what are your thoughts about perfectionism and failures? Perfectionism is something that's, it is the, the sewer that all dreams and hopes live 
I love it, man. That was great. That's a keeper. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that's going to be a real. <laughs> so I used to work in Silicon Valley um, in another life as well. Um, I had a bunch of different lives. So I used to work in Silicon Valley in another life. And when I worked at this tech company, one of the things I, I learned was that like perfectionism is bullshit. Um, and the fact that it's like, we're trying to, you know what they say, fail fast and fail often. So like, let's get to the no, let's get to the failure so that we can move quickly to the option that might actually be a winner. Hmm. So in Silicon Valley, like that's what they do. They're always doing beta testing. They always testing because they're trying to fail fast and fail often so that they can move to the next step. And I think for a lot of us, especially when you talk about like this uh, social media area era where like everything's all beautified and filters and things of that sort is that we think that everything has to be perfect in order to get our point across. And that is not necessarily the way. So I think about, um, what is his name? Warren Buffett. I was watching um, him give a talk or like, what is, what is the, not Hartford, what is their company? I need to figure out what Warren Buffett company is called. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway. So during the pandemic, I watched Warren Buffett give like, you know, the address to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. He gave it in a black and white PowerPoint hmm. that wasn't even spell checked. <laughs> <laughs> One of the richest men in the world that probably has money to like have somebody do this deck for him. Right. Well, one of the richest companies in the world that has all this money does not, if they don't care about the PowerPoint that they're giving them and they just giving the message and it's in black and white, why should I be worrying in my head about making sure my PowerPoint is all beautiful and all this other stuff when that does not matter? It's just a vehicle to convey the message. Mm -hmm. Yes. The message matter more than the vehicle. And I think for a lot of us, we worry about the vehicle. Like we want to make sure our car is polished up. We want to make sure that, you know, it got the rims on it, got the sound. It just looks aesthetic and nice. But the message is trash. So that's the same thing with perfection is that we need to stop worrying about the vehicle, tone up our message, and continue to fail fast and fail often. Yeah, yeah. And failure is an opportunity. You learn you, and you, 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 you revise whatever you're doing, you know, whatever, you know, if it's the tech company, now they know that that doesn't work. So we're going to go over here and try this. I mean, failure is an opportunity. You know what they say, right? A setback. Ah, I'm about to get into my pastor, you know, my, my, my pastor Martinez, a setback. Ah, it's a setup for a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Definitely is a setup for a comeback. Heck yeah. Oh, that's great, Martius. All right. Well, hey, we're getting uh, over the hour mark here. And so I'll just throw out one last question that's small. What is on your race calendar for 2023? 
Um, that is a very interesting question. Right now, uh, I'm doing the Boston 5K. I have a Chicago Marathon. Um, maybe Philly. I applied for New York Marathon Lottery. Um, so, like, those are some of the races I have on my calendar. But I think the the biggest race that I'm really focusing on is the Saloya Front Club Book Tour. And, like, that's going to be a big overtaking in itself. That's going to be an endurance race for sure. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I, you got me excited just now hearing that you're going to be at Chicago. My wife is running it. I tried to get into it, and I was not one of the lucky 45,000 individuals. Uh, so I will be out there, and I hope that I get to shake your hand and meet you in person. Absolutely. Yeah, well, Martinez, it's been a pleasure having you on Old Bodies Outside. I really appreciate you coming here and delivering very quality and usable content with those tools, being vulnerable with the audience. I really appreciate all of it, and I'm filled with gratitude, so thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, I'm going to throw on that outro music. We'll call it an episode.